is from Luke 15, from verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe, severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring me the best robes and put it on him. Bring a ring, put it on his finger, and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again, was lost and he is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called on one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has, has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Lynn. It's great to be with you. Um, I'll ask you, please, uh, uh, take out that great wad of papers you were given. On the inside of this one is the Bible passage, which you ought to have in front of you. There is also a little insert, which has an outline of what I'm going to talk about. Uh, you will come across in there this newsletter, which is uh, from 
evangelical students. This is the campus ministry that I'm involved with. People are always asking me, what's God doing among students? Here is one way of giving you feedback. That's for you to take away. It's not for reading now. Uh, And to be encouraged by what God is doing amongst undergraduates, particularly on North Terrace. Uh, And with that in mind, if you know of anyone who's starting university next year, uh, we'd love to invite them to join us at Commencement Camp, which is like a pre-university orientation camp we run, particularly for Christian students. Uh, These little business cards with details on the table at the back, or else you can come and have a chat with me about that as well. But it's the best way to help students get prepared for life at university. Um, So with the passage in front of you for Luke 15 in the outline, uh, let me pray for us and then we'll get started. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word has been written for us. We thank you that it teaches us much about ourselves, but more importantly, about what you are like. Uh, So we ask this morning, amidst all the distractions uh, that consume us so so readily, uh, remind us once again of your incredible grace and mercy. Amen. Uh, Well, uh, we've just had the Bible read to us. Thanks, Tony, for that. Um, I suspect that for many of us, if you were asked, you would say this is perhaps the most famous Bible passage ever. Uh, It's an incredible story, isn't it? A story about uh, redemption of God's love and power and mercy. And in many ways, the point of the story is very simple. Um, Here it is. The point of the story is, come home while you can. Uh, You can never fall too far to be forgiven. Uh, The story of the prodigal son is so well known in popular culture, though, that uh, all I want to do this morning is just point out some of the shocks in the story lest we've either forgotten them or were never aware of them. And you'll see the four shocks that I want to refer to there on your handout. Uh, From the outset, what I want to acknowledge this morning is that most people, Christians included, I think, uh, don't realise that this is not a story about a lost son. Uh, This is a story about two lost sons. Uh, One who runs far away, the other who never even leaves home. Shock number one, uh, you can't ask that. Uh, I've given the heading to this first shock uh, in reference to a show that some of you might have seen on ABC where uh, reporters run around and they stick microphones in front of people and ask them, uh, what's, the un- uh, what's the unaskable question? Uh, you see one in this story. Uh, it's not fashionable, of course, to dwell on the younger son and his fall from grace because, to be honest, most of us prefer good news stories. Uh, but redemption makes no sense unless we feel just how far it is that the younger son has fallen, how outrageous and scandalous his request is. He wants his share of his father's estate, but he can't wait for his dad to die. Basically, he's saying, Dad, you're worth no more than a big pile of cash to me, so give me the money whilst I'm still young enough to enjoy it. It's interesting that when Jesus tells this story, he doesn't dwell on all the follow-on questions that no doubt spring into your mind as you hear this son's outrageous request. I found myself thinking this week, what would happen if I asked this of my father? And then I found myself thinking, what would happen if my son asked me? There's a whole series of questions that follow on. Why does the father agree? Uh, Why doesn't he just throw him out? Why doesn't he disown him, given that the son clearly doesn't want a relationship with him anyway? Has he realised that, in fact, he's already lost his son, but at least if he accedes to this last request, there's a chance that he might come home one day? Jesus doesn't answer those questions. 
He just moves on in the story. And sure enough, soon enough, it all falls apart for the younger son who's got this big pile of cash but squanders it in wild living. Uh, Actually, there's not really a surprise there, is it? I mean, what kind of a man must he have been if he would make the request initially? There's little chance that what he's been given he will use well. But in a moment of clarity, the younger son decides that he'll go back home, he'll apologise, and he'll see if he might still have a place where he's accepted. Which brings us to shock number two. Shock number two in this story, the prodigal is welcomed back. The prodigal is welcomed home. Uh, What's amazing, of course, in this story is that the father forgives the son unconditionally. He doesn't even give the younger son time to blurt out his pretty cynical, pre-prepared confession that he's been mulling over on his head. He's so thrilled to have his son back that he welcomes him with open arms. Now, the way in which Jesus describes it there is that he embraces him, he kisses him, he celebrates, he even restores him to his previous place of high honour, not just a menial servant. Now, I'm sure you've worked it out, of course, that the reason Jesus is telling this story, the reason he is speaking this parable is because, of course, the father is meant to represent God. And so at this point, it will be good, although I'm not going to, it will be good for me to dwell on the incredible nature of God's forgiveness. Instead, let me just limit my comments to one. From the way in which the father accepts back the younger son, we're being told that no matter what you have done, you can always come back to God. No matter what you have done, you can always come back to God. And I say that because no matter what you have done, you cannot have done any worse than the younger son has done. He told his father he wished he was dead. So whatever you have done with your life in your relationship or non-relationship with God, you cannot do worse than that. Yet still, you can always come back home. You are always welcome. Because the picture of God that's being described is of a God who is forgiving and who is merciful. And with him, there is full and free forgiveness. If only you will ask. I do want to speak at this point to those of us uh, who have tender consciences. Uh, those of us who find ourselves racked by guilt, who think, sure, Jeff, but God couldn't forgive me for what I have done. I guess particularly I want to address the Christians amongst us, uh, the members of this church who worry even now about the sins they have committed since coming to faith. Please don't let any of your past mistakes stop you. They ought be no hindrance to you because they are no hindrance to God. This is a story, in the end, primarily about our Father and what he is like. No matter what you have done, you can always come back to him. Now, normally, the modern telling of the parable of the prodigal son stops here. Uh, We celebrate and we delight in the fact that that which was lost has been found. Someone who had wandered off the tracks has been restored again. It's a good news story that normally ends at this point. Of course, that's not what Jesus does. Because Luke 15 goes on. That's only halfway through. And for the rest of the time, his focus is on the older brother. 
And so I want to ask you what you think is going on for the older son. Uh, Imagine, if you will, if you were one of the people at the time who were listening to Jesus as he's told this story. He's described the horror of what the younger son has done, uh, the consequences that have fallen on his head, the way in which he's been welcomed home. My guess is if you're one of the religious leaders of the time and you're standing there listening to Jesus as he tells this story to a great crowd, you'd probably be expecting him to say just that. In fact, you'd probably be nodding, wouldn't you? If you're a Baptist, amen, preach it, brother. This is what you would expect to hear because it's a description of what God is like. He is merciful and forgiving no matter what we have done. Everyone deserves a second chance. If only they will come back to him. The problem is... That's not how the teachers of the law and the religious leaders of the time reacted. And to see that, we need to go back to the start of the chapter. And so I'll get you to look on your handout. I printed there for you the first few verses of Luke chapter 15. And we saw these last week uh, because we've been making our way through this whole chapter. Here's how this episode began. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so in response, verse 3, Jesus told them this parable. Verses 4 through 7, the parable of the lost sheep that we saw last week. Verses 8 through 10, the parable of the lost coin. Jesus is speaking with the crowds. And in fact, he's hanging out with the disreputables the tax collectors, and the sinners. And in so doing, the religious people, the leaders, the churchgoers, they look with condemnation on Jesus for hanging out with such unforgivable people. And so it's at this point, I think, that having told the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin, Jesus now focuses on the other lost son, the one who is dutiful, obedient, always does the right thing and hasn't even been mentioned in the story because he's not scandalous in any way. Or is he? Shock number three, you can be lost without ever leaving home. You can be lost without ever leaving home. Uh, When the younger son comes home, as Jesus continues in the story, uh, we discover that the older brother is not very pleased about the return of his good-for-nothing younger brother. Uh, In fact, he's very angry. Of course, the question is, with whom is he most angry? Is it his younger sibling or is it with his father? Now, one level, it feels like what's upsetting the older brother is that his younger brother has gotten away with it yet again. The older brother is the one who's witnessed all the damage that's been caused. But now it seems as if, yet again, his little brother isn't being held to account. He's not experiencing the full consequences of his actions. Let me point out at this moment that... um, How you compare and contrast those two brothers probably depends on your own birth order. So, uh, let me ask at this point, um, because this will probably determine who you're most critical of in this story, uh, who here is an older sibling? Some of us, yeah? 
Who here is a younger sibling? Okay, about half and half. Uh, In case this hasn't come across, uh, I'm an older sibling, uh, and uh, everything I'm about to say you can confirm afterwards. My sister is visiting here from Sydney, my little sister. (laughs) What a day to be here. Um, Let me tell you what I'd be thinking if I were the older son in this story, if I were the older brother. Just witnessing as my younger sibling who has gone away and come back and been restored to a place of honour despite all they've done, I would be rolling my eyes uh, because yet again, it's a reminder that us older siblings, we're expected to be perfect, aren't we? Anytime everything go, any go, anything goes wrong, anytime there's a fight, we always get blamed, even if it was the younger sibling who started it, and they usually did. Um, now, of course... Uh, If you're a younger sibling, uh, you'll be saying, well, hang on a moment there. Life's not so easy being a younger child. Uh, We're always the last to receive any privileges. Uh, We're the ones who always have to wear the hand-me-down clothes, get the hand-me-down toys. Or, as I said, I work with university students, the the greatest burden in life in the Western world, the hand-me-down mobile phones. (laughs) There's never any fuss made about our achievements because, quite frankly, we've seen it all before. I should acknowledge, of course, if you're a middle sibling, I apologise, I've entirely forgotten you, but that's what happens uh, for you guys anyway. So. Uh, it becomes evident pretty fast, doesn't it, that the older brother's gripe in the story, although superficially with his younger brother, his real problem is with his father. Because as the prodigal is welcomed home, the older brother feels that, in fact, he's the one who's been treated unfairly. After all, he's the one who's slaved away for years. He's the one who had to pick up the pieces when the younger son ran away and left his father distraught and broken. He's the one who has never disgraced the family name with wild living. He's always done the right thing. He's never screwed up. He's never failed. And so he feels like he's the one who's been hardly done by. Because the older son thinks that he deserves to be rewarded for his obedience. Let me say that again. The older son thinks that he deserves to be rewarded for his obedience. You see that from the way in which he reacts. When his younger brother comes back, did you notice the way in which he, he, he described him? He says to his father, this son of yours, doesn't call him my brother. He says, this son of yours, it's as if to dis- emphasize that he's disowned him. And he says, he's squandered your property with prostitutes. Now, of course, it's entirely possible that that's what the younger son had done, but there'd been no mention of that until this point in the story. So why does he bring it up? Well, I presume he brings it up just to hurt his father even more, just to be cruel and vicious. But when he says to his father, this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, what he's really saying is, this son of yours has squandered my inheritance. Because when the father welcomes the little brother back and when he restores him to his place of honour, what he's really doing is giving the younger son what belongs to the older brother. He's already given away the younger son's portion to him all those years ago. And so here's my point. 
Can you see how in the story that Jesus is telling that the older son is no different from the younger son? What the older son is saying is exactly what the younger son said to his father in the first place. Dad, you're worth no more than a big pile of cash to me. Because at the end of the day, the problem with the older brother is that he hasn't understood what it is that the father has given him, what the father is offering him. He hasn't understood what it means to be a son in this particular family. You see, to be a son of this father is not about having goats to celebrate with. It's not about feasts. It's not about possessions. To belong to this family is all about intimacy and about relationship. You know that because the very first thing that the father says to the older son as he tries to placate him is, my son, you are always with me. My son, you are always with me. That's the most important thing for the older brother to understand. That he is always with his father. And I presume that's the reason why the father responded to the older brother saying, this son of yours, by saying, this brother of yours. To emphasize that in the end, relationship is what, make li- is what makes life worth living. There is no point in acquiring everything in having everything, in experiencing everything, if there is no one to enjoy it with. Uh, And perhaps there's just a smallest inkling into that, that I think we understand that. We operate that way. Um, If you've ever entered a competition to win an overseas holiday, which I'm sure most of us have at some point, the prize is always for two, isn't it? It's never for one. What we see in this story is that in the older brother, there are not one but two lost sons. You can be lost without ever leaving home. Which means, I think, in this context, in our context today, it's a warning that you can go to church all your life. You can go through the motions. You can do your best to keep the commands. And quite frankly, you can be pretty good at it as well. But you can do so without ever loving God for who he is. And for the joy of knowing him and of being with him and of belonging to him. You can have forgotten the privilege that there is of being able to call him dad. And the test to see if you succumb to this is if you started thinking that God owes you. That he's indebted to you for your obedience. You know you started thinking that way if you're starting to get cranky when he doesn't give you what you want because he thinks he ought to reward you. Uh, When the best thing that he has given us is himself. You know, sometimes when uh, you go to a new setting and people are trying to get to know each other, and sometimes you play a get-to-know-you game, which goes like this, uh, who is the person in history you'd most like to have dinner with? Uh, And, of course, in Christian context, when you play that game, It's who's the person in history you most like to have dinner with apart from Jesus. And, uh, you know, I feel like that's a pretty stupid qualification to put on it because, to be honest, is that not the person you would most like to eat with, to be with, to belong to, to be able to sit down with and just talk together and to have the intimacy of relationship that is being described here in Luke 15? 
Is that not what we long for? To be able to be with the one who has made us. Who knows how far we have fallen, but who loves us still the same. Now at this point, can I say, please don't get angsty. Uh, Don't let this cause you to start getting all angsty and wonder, oh, you know what, am I really God's child after all? Let me turn to the fourth and final shock, where we discover that the father is waiting on the veranda, so to speak, pleading with you to come inside. And so fourthly, finally, shock number four, no failure is too big to be forgiven. Uh, When the older brother refuses to come in, uh, the father is the one who goes outside, verse 28, to plead with him, to plead with his older son to join the celebrations. Now, uh, if I were the father in this story, uh, which is really just a way of saying, if I were God, and so you know this sentence is not going to end well, but if I were the father in the story and my older child was refusing to come in, I'd probably just say, do you know what? To hell with him. Quite frankly, if he's just going to come in and sulk anyway, who wants him? He needs to just grow up a bit. Thankfully for everyone, I'm not God. Because, of of course, God's love for us is so great that even when we refuse to come inside, he doesn't give up. He comes to us. Which, of course, is the whole reason why Jesus is telling this story in the first place. It's the whole reason why Jesus has come at all. Because our Heavenly Father, he could not bear to leave us astray. He comes looking for us to bring us home again, even if we haven't gone very far. And I presume the only reason why in the story the older father hadn't gone after the younger son in the same way was because he didn't know where he was. He'd gone to a far-off land. But verse 20, where it says that uh, while the younger son was still far away, the father saw him, I think is a hint that actually the father has been standing every day that his younger son has been away on the veranda, looking out, desperately hoping that maybe today would be the day when his little boy came home and what had been lost might at last be found. Let me turn to the fourth and final shock, where we discover that the father is waiting on the veranda, so to speak, pleading with you to come inside. And so fourthly, finally, shock number four, no failure is too big to be forgiven. Uh, When the older brother refuses to come in, Uh, The father is the one who goes outside, verse 28, to plead with him, to plead with his older son to join the celebrations. Now, uh, if I were the father in this story, uh, which is really just a way of saying if I were God, and so you know this sentence is not going to end well, but if I were the father in the story and my older child was refusing to come in, I'd probably just say, do you know what? To hell with him. Quite frankly, if he's just going to come in and sulk anyway, who wants him? He needs to just grow up a bit. Thankfully for everyone, I'm not God. Because of of course, God's love for us is so great that even when we refuse to come inside, he doesn't give up. He comes to us.
which of course is the whole reason why Jesus is telling this story in the first place. It's the whole reason why Jesus has come at all. Because our Heavenly Father, he could not bear to leave us astray. He comes looking for us to bring us home again, even if we haven't gone very far. And I presume the only reason why in the story the older father hadn't gone after the younger son in the same way was because he didn't know where he was. He'd gone to a far-off land. But verse 20, where it says that uh, while the younger son was still far away, the father saw him, I think is a hint that actually the father has been standing every day that his younger son has been away on the veranda, looking out, desperately hoping that maybe today would be the day when his little boy came home and what had been lost might at last be found. So let me tie it up and draw a few conclusions. So what for us? Well, Jesus is saying, I think, in this story, with the characteristic lack of subtlety that Jesus has in most of his stories, that... All of us are as bad as each other. Some of us hide from God by running away. We indulge in wild living. We do our best to make the most out of this life. And actually, some of us are pretty good at it. But others of us, we hide behind slavish obedience, even though we never stray far from home. But Jesus is saying, we're all as bad as each other. And that means... None of us deserves to be restored. None of us is entitled to any reward because all of us are failures. Whether you're that good-for-nothing younger brother or the holier-than-thou older sibling. You know that trick question that parents sometimes get asked? Which of your children do you love most? Here's my answer when I get asked, which of your children do you love most? I say, I love each of my children equally because they're all equally undeserving. As am I in my own family. But recall, if you will, that in Luke 15, Jesus is telling this story particularly against the Pharisees and the tax collectors, against the religious insiders, against the churchgoers of the day. Which means I think in this story... It's especially a warning for Christians, particularly for those of us who have grown up in the church, for those of us who have never known a day when we haven't known the Lord. The older son, I think, is a warning. It's a warning for everyone who hides behind the shore, but I'm not like that younger brother. You know, I was never a drug-dealing axe murderer before I came to faith. So I don't need to be forgiven. Uh, It's interesting, actually. um, Secretly, some of us, I think, wish we did have a testimony like that. To which I often, uh, because we often think, you know, my story is so boring. I was raised in a Christian home. I've always known Jesus as my saviour and Lord. Uh, When I hear people say that that's a really boring testimony, well, actually, I just want to gently remind them that there's nothing boring about that story Because you can be lost without ever leaving home. 
To drive it home, Jesus, I think, is saying that those who have grown up in church-going families are most at risk of thinking that you deserve preferential treatment, that you ought to expect that God will take a special care of you and that you will see the things that you want for fulfilled in your life. Those of us who've grown up that way, in particular, that sense of obligation and duty, the things that we've endured and sacrificed for God, they can make us think that we're deserving of preferential treatment. Pastors are at risk of this. Pastors' kids are at risk of this. Pastors who have kids are at risk of this because we can start to think, even if I have given up things for God and I'm okay with that, surely God ought to look with favour, particularly on my children, for what they have been through. Can you see that what Jesus is saying is that none of us are deserving, but God in his kindness and mercy offers his compassion to all, if only we will ask. So let me finish by simply asking you, which of those two sons are you most like? Which of those two sons are you most likely to become? The one who runs away in active rebellion? Or the one who just drifts away over time without ever leaving home? Can I say that if you're someone who's new to Christianity, if uh, this year has been the year in which you've come to know Jesus for the first time, uh, at some point you'll make one of those two mistakes. All of us do. All of us have. So when you do, not if you do, when you do, please remember that the point of Luke 15 in the end is not just to draw the comparison with either of those two sons, the point of Luke 15 is to remind us of what our father is like. He still loves you. No matter what you've done, he will always have you back if only you will come inside and join the celebrations. Uh, I've worked out in recent times that particularly talking to university students uh, who have increasingly short intention spans, uh, that just using words isn't enough to help them remember what we talked about. So I'm trying to give an image, perhaps one that sticks in their mind. And the image that you'll see at the bottom of your page there is not a very good image, but uh, it kind of does the point. It's a picture of a doormat. I don't know if you've ever seen these doormats. Yeah, you can get novelty doormats made up. There's a doormat that just simply reminds you of what Luke 15 is about. Welcome home. All you have to do is step over that threshold. Uh, All of us need to do that at some point in our lives. When we do, our response is always the same. The prayer is almost the same. Whether or not you've run away in search of fulfillment or whether you've just gotten bitter, slowly, atrophied over time with what you have not received. The prayer is always the same. It goes like this. Dad, I'm sorry. I realize I just want to be with you. I've forgotten the delight and safety and comfort and joy of being safe in your arms again. Please have me back. And the good news of the gospel is that the Father is always there, arms open. So what are you waiting for?
Let me pray. Dad, I'm sorry. I realize I just want to be with you. I've forgotten the delight and safety and comfort and joy of being safe in your arms again. Please have me back. Thank you for sending Jesus to bring me home. Amen.